Good morning. It's 830. I'm Paul Boger filling in for Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a grand jury declines to indict a white Tupelo police officer in the June 18th shooting death of an unarmed black man. We'll hear from the attorney of the man's family. She believes that the evidence is there. It's just as plain as day that the officer utilized excessive force and that he had uh, in his heart the intent to kill her husband. Then the city of Natchez is 300 years old today. Later, a health minute from Dr. Rick DeShazo on social anxiety disorder and how do Zika and other diseases pass from animal populations to human populations. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A Lee County grand jury has cleared a white Tupelo police officer of criminal action in the June 18th shooting death of an unarmed black man. The details of the incident have been disputed, but the attorney representing the family of Antoine Ronnie Shumpert says federal authorities are conducting an independent review of the death. Attorney Carlos Moore, also representing the family in a civil lawsuit against the city, speaks with MPB's Mark Rigsby. I just hung up with the wife, the widow the mother of his children, and she is devastated. She could not go to work today. She just um, is trying to get herself together. It's just like reliving um, that fate of night all over again. Uh, yesterday, she had hoped against hope that Tupelo uh, and the Lee County with jury would do the right thing, grand jury would do the right thing, and return an indictment. She believes that the evidence is there. It's just as plain as day that the officer utilized excessive force and that he uh, had uh, in his heart um, his depraved heart, the intent to kill her husband. Uh, there was no reason for him to be killed for simply running from a traffic stop. He was unarmed and to be shot four times and beaten. She just could not understand how a civilized grand jury could have returned no indictment. There are two different versions of what happened that day. Your version includes the canine officer attacking Mr. Shumpert, followed by Cook shooting and killing him. The city says Cook shot Shumpert after he was attacked, so it appears the grand jury saw the city's version of events were more accurate. What is your response? The grand jury proceeding is a secretive proceeding. We do not know what evidence uh, was placed before the grand jurors. Um, The defense attorney uh, or the family's attorney that is not privy to the grand jury proceedings, so I have absolutely no idea uh, what evidence was put before that grand jury. What I do know in my 14 years of experience is that you can indict a ham sandwich if you want to. Uh, so time and time again, these police officers continually uh, get off at the grand jury proceedings. Um, uh, they, uh, there's always a no-true bill nine times out of ten, and I believe it's because the prosecutor works in tandem with the local police department and the local MBI uh, time and time again. And it's so hard to police your own people and to actually uh, present a strong a strong uh, case to a grand jury. So the grand jurors uh, can sense when the DA wants an uh, indictment and when that person does not want one. So that's why the family has always advocated for a special prosecutor to present the case. Unfortunately, the DA in this case would not recuse himself and chose to present it uh, to the grand jury, and you see the results we got. Um, while the family had hope, had hoped for the best, uh, as an educated and learned uh, person trained in the law, I I knew uh, uh, to expect the worst. What's the piece of evidence in your mind, as an attorney, 
that best supports the version of events that you laid out in your civil suit against the city on behalf of the Shumpert family, where the canine officer attacked Mr. Shumpert and then the police officer, Mr. Cook, shot Mr. Shumpert? I don't know if you had the opportunity to watch the DA's um, press conference yesterday, uh, but during that press conference it was revealed that Cook gave the bite command to the canine. He gave the bite command to the canine, and when you give a bite command to the canine, what is the canine to do? He's going to bite. That was the command given according to the DA, to the DA yesterday. So we believe that the canine did bite Mr. Cook, um, bite Mr. Shumpert, uh, as the family has indicated. Uh, we do believe that that groin injury uh, was uh, the first injury inflicted before the other three shots. Even by the city's version, uh, they state that the first shot was to the groin. And if you've seen the pictures which we released, that groin injury is so grotesque, the man could not have been a threat to anyone after suffering that injury to his groin. I mean, his testicles were n- nearly mutilated, a gaping hole in his wound that you could stick a fist in. How do you justify shooting him three times after that? I don't care if it came from a dog or a gun. That wound was so grotesque and so gruesome. Under no stretch of the imagination should he have been shot three more times. And then to be beaten, I mean, he has a severe laceration under his eye. Looked like he was punched severely. And then he has a laceration across the bridge of his nose. And then his mouth, his teeth are stumped in. They're almost down his throat. When did all of this occur? It was clearly excessive. It clearly shows that this Tyler Cook became the judge, jury, and executioner on June 18th, and it's unacceptable. Uh, the family is not by the hokey-doke, the hokey-doke, and we intend to get justice. Now that the grand jury has made its decision, you still have a civil case against the city of Tupelo. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, we do have a civil case, and we have filed that in federal court in Aberdeen, and we expect to get justice. Our burden of proof is not the same as in a criminal court. We only have to prove our case by a preponderance of the evidence, and I'm confident that we will be able to sustain our burden. Um, We do know that there were other officers in the vicinity. Uh, If Cook was so afraid as he says he was, he could have waited for backup. Why didn't he wait for backup? Because he was not afraid. And we do know that um, by the stature of Ronnie Shumpert, he was a a football player, a well-regarded, well-renowned football player. Had he punched Cook, a white man, uh, with his closed fist, as many times as he says he did, where he thought he was about to lose consciousness, the photograph of Tyler Cook's face would depict such. MPB's Mark Rigsby with attorney Carlos Moore, who is representing the family of Antoine Ronnie Shumpert. Shumpert was killed by a Tupelo police officer in June. A spokesman for the city of Tupelo says officials were unavailable for comment. Up next, the city of Natchez is 300 years old today. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Jeremy Hobson. 20 years ago, Seinfeld was on top. It made the mundane funny. The Health Minute is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Yeah, and you're an anti-dentite. But that humor changed television and much more. Seinfeld's enduring legacy, next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Paul Boger. A party like this doesn't happen very often. Today, the city of Natchez turns 300 years old. 
The Mississippi River town has been many things over the centuries, trading post, port, and one of the richest cities in America. MPB's Sid Scott spoke with Jennifer Ogden Combs, executive director of the Natchez Tricentennial Commission, and about the events today and into the weekend. Natchez, of course, is turning today 300 years old. One of the oldest settlements on the Mississippi River, the Natchez people, the Natchez Nation Indian tribe, was the first original peoples of the Natchez area. Um, so mm-hmm. it, we go back a long, long, long way. Long um, way, 300 August, years. <laughs> is it more than that, because the Natchez <laughs> yeah. tribe is definitely here before. But we were actually, the French settlement, um, the French fort at Fort Rosalie, was um, completed on August 3rd of, of 1716, and that's, that's the date that's recognized. And the reason it is that date is that the French actually completed the fort, which is a spectacular site on the bluff of the Mississippi, 200 feet up above the Mississippi. It certainly gave Natchez many strategic advantages, advantages over 300 years, having that placement up above the river. Um, it's an exciting day for us. It's been many years um, in the planning. Um, I, I, I was a film producer in Los Angeles from Natchez originally, that, and I had this idea eight years ago that, you know, it's a pretty cool thing getting to have a 300-year anniversary. It doesn't happen every day, right? It does not. But what I saw in, in it that really excited me, not, not simply from the film side, but from being having grown up here, is that it's a rare opportunity in the fact that it is something that belongs to every single person. It doesn't matter whether you're the city, the county, um, you know, whatever your religion, race, whether you're in this club or that club, this kind of an anniversary belongs to all of us. And I really saw this as an opportunity for us to all get behind a common goal, which is to commemorate the past, some of Natchez history is not necessarily to be celebrated, but it is important to commemorate it. Um, and then, of course, celebrating our present. We've got fabulous growth and, and opportunity that's happening here. And then using the anniversary as well for the third of the three C's, which kind of conveniently, being 300 years, turned into three C's, yeah. um, creating the future. The things that we are doing this whole entire year to, to mark this anniversary will lead us toward establishing some new, a new level for us to kind of reach for going forward and creating a better future for our kids. A lot of what we've been doing have been legacy projects, things that were improvements to the city that um, brought, that, that are bringing about um, some really positive change economically and, and positive change for, for Natchez. Tell our <laughs> listeners what starts this morning uh, at 9 o'clock. We uh, we start where Natchez started, at the Grand Village of the Natchez Indians with the Natchez tribe. So we start at Grand Village at 9. Bill Hutkey Fields, who is the chief principal chief and great son of the Natchez tribe, um, is joining us from Oklahoma and will open with a Natchez tribal ceremony. Uh, then we have a speaker that will talk about some of the early, early, early Natchez people's history, the Natchez Nation history. Then we have at 1.30, we, ha- we move to the Natchez Visitor Reception Center, and there we have um, several speakers who will be talking about sort of the early French colonial period, but we've also got children's activities. So for, for parents that, that can accompany a child, we've got, we've got children's activities at both of those places that correlate to 
that particular period of history. Um, and then at four o'clock, we're very, very excited to um, be having the dedication and ribbon cutting of the third site of the Natchez National Historical Park, which is, that's a huge deal in itself to have three sites um, in one um, national park. That and then did it is an old-fashioned birthday party on the bluff starting at 6 o'clock. Excellent. How can people find out more? NatchezMS300.com. Um, that is N-A-T-C-H-E-Z. Uh, ms300.com, natchezms300.com. You can also um, visit our Facebook page. Jennifer Ogden Combs is Executive Director of the Natchez Tricentennial Commission. Natchez turns 300 today. Jennifer, thanks for talking with us. Sid, thank you so much. Up next, a health minute from Dr. Rick DeShazo on social anxiety disorder. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. More than two centuries ago, the first American president took office. And next year, the 45th will take office. Follow history in the making. Right here on this station. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. Your favorite MPB Think Radio shows are now available on your favorite podcast app. So open that app and subscribe to any local program you love, like Everyday Tech. Android does have the most delicious operating system, I find. Joe is Joey Bean. The Gestalt Gardener. What's up? What you got going on? And of course, MPB's Season Pass with myself, Sam Wells, and Jay White. That's my guys, man. So what are you waiting for? Go search and subscribe today. Hi, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute. It's a minute about social anxiety disorder, a condition where folks feel anxious in social situations. They can be embarrassed in front of other people, and it can keep folks from doing things they need and want to do. There are different forms of social anxiety. Anxiety at meetings or parties is sometimes called social phobia. Other folks have social anxiety only at certain times, like speaking before an audience. This problem is sometimes called performance anxiety. Unfortunately, folks with social anxiety disorder avoid social activities because they worry about being embarrassed or fear that others will say bad things about them. Some people even have physical symptoms when they have social anxiety. This can include blushing, sweating, tremblessness, a rapid heartbeat, or a fear of looking at other folks. How do you treat social anxiety disorder? There are two treatments. One is called cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, which is talk therapy. There you talk with a psychologist or other counselor about your issues and develop effective coping mechanisms to deal with the anxiety you have. Sometimes medicines are also required and certain antidepressant medicines are also very effective with anxiety. Sometimes it takes cognitive behavioral therapy and medicines at the same time for severe cases. Folks with social anxiety disorder often have some level of anxiety most of the time. For those folks, anxiety comes and goes and is provoked by stress. The good news is most people can find treatments that are adequate to have a normal life. For more health tips and medical information, listen for Southern Remedy each weekday at 11, where the doctors are always in. For MPB Think Radio, I'm Dr. Rick DeShazer.
Ami Eubanks-Davis thought her job was done when her hardworking students graduated from college. But then she watched as they failed to get into the professional world. They weren't getting those skills and access to networks simply because of who they were born to and where they were born. So she decided to do something about it. Later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. 227 years ago, the first U.S. president took office. Next year, the 45th will. Follow History in the Making right here on this station. Listen every day. Weekdays at 4 on MPB Think Radio. MPB Think Radio loves to help with lots of subjects. But between 9 and 10 on Wednesday mornings, we focus on your nest. On Fix It 101, we want to help you make your place safer, quieter, drier, brighter, bigger, cooler, cozier, or the opposite of any of those things, depending on your preference. The pros are Del Moore of Affordable Solutions 601 and Jeff Sammons of Houseworks. I'm the amateur and host, Jason Klein. So go ahead and ask away. Fix It 101 is Wednesdays at 9 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Paul Boger. To date, 14 cases of Zika have been reported in Mississippi, all from people who travel to Zika-infested countries. The disease has also now been transmitted via mosquito in Florida. Dr. John Epstein is a vice president of at EcoHealth Alliance, an environmental conservation group. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the migration of diseases like Zika from animals to humans is increasing around the world. This phenomenon is explored in the documentary Spillover, Zika, Ebola, and Beyond, which Epstein appears in. What people are going to see when they watch this documentary is they're going to understand the, the people working on the front lines of outbreaks like Ebola, like Zika, uh, like some diseases they may not have heard of, like Nipah virus. These are all diseases that originally uh, come from animal populations, typically wild animals, that have made their way into human populations at some point in time, whether it's through direct transmission or spillover, as we refer to it, uh, or whether it comes through livestock or via mosquito bite. And we're seeing more and more of these emerging diseases over time uh, at a rate we've never seen before in history. And it's primarily because of human activities and the way that we're doing things to the environment, like deforestation or agricultural expansion, building farms next to forest, things that are putting us into closer contact with wild animal populations and allowing for many of these diseases to make the jump into livestock or people. And so this documentary explores the response to big outbreaks like Ebola and Zika, but also looks ahead to how, what we're doing to get ahead of the curve to better understand new viruses that are likely to emerge and what we're doing to stop them from becoming pandemics. I know you mentioned it a little bit, but how is it that a germ, a virus that an animal has, can end up impacting humans? Well, people might not realize, but more than half of all the viruses that infect people come from animals originally, what we call zoonotic. They've spread from animals into people. And of the viruses we talk about, like Ebola or Zika, that are emerging, about three-quarters of those come from animals, typically wildlife. And there's a variety of ways that they can make their way from wild animals into people. It could be through direct contact, although it's not typically through being bitten, as people might think, by an animal. Um, But it's things like hunting, where we're catching and butchering wildlife and being exposed to bodily fluids. 
It might be through contamination of food, so animals are attracted to human food resources and they might accidentally contaminate it um, with you know, feces or urine or excretion that contains virus. So there are different ways that we come into contact, and it might be wildlife and livestock coming into contact, livestock getting infected, and then spreading viruses to people that way. Uh, so there are lots of different ways it can happen, but primarily it's because of things we do that bring us into contact with wildlife. Can you eat meat of an infected animal and get what they have? Absolutely. In fact, several of the early Ebola outbreaks in Central Africa were linked to hunters that were foraging for uh, animals and finding carcasses of gorillas or chimpanzees that had died from Ebola and, and bringing the meat from those animals back to their village and consuming it. And as we know now from the outbreak in West Africa, a human body, and similarly a great ape, remains infectious for days after it dies uh, when it dies from Ebola. And so that contact with a carcass was exposing people to Ebola virus and causing it to jump into humans. Would that be the same with the HIV virus, the AIDS virus? Yeah, that's perhaps one of the most significant examples of a zoonotic disease that spilled over. HIV was originally a, a non-human primate virus in chimpanzees and other monkeys called SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus. And through the process of people hunting chimpanzees and other monkeys and butchering them and becoming, you know, getting exposed to blood or bodily fluid, that virus made the jump into people and adapted to, to the human immune system and physiology and then began circulating in humans exclusively and became HIV. So, so that, and that's probably been one of the most significant public health uh, situations we've had historically of a zoonotic virus establishing itself in people. If you look back yeah. over time, this was happening, but not at this rate, you said. That's right. You know, we've you know, over big time scales, people have had different relationships with animals from hunting as we started to domesticate livestock. We started to live in closer association with animals and we started sharing diseases. And then, you know, as populations have grown and now the world has become such a small place with travel, we, we can get exposed to an animal virus in one part of the world, hop on a plane and literally be anywhere else in the world, well within the incubation period of that disease, we might not even know we're infected by the time we've brought a virus from, say, Central Africa to the United States or to Europe. Um, so really, travel and trade has accelerated the spread of diseases around the world. How do you get a handle on this? It seems like a daunting task, doesn't it? Yes. Um, we're certainly learning a lot, and, and the, the global health community is working hard to understand where diseases are likely to spill over and how they're likely to spill over. And we're getting a much better understanding of that. We understand the process. And so now what we're doing to, to combat that is working with governments and local partners in countries around the world to strengthen their systems, their ability to detect these viruses when they spill over and to respond to them quickly so they never become big outbreaks and global pandemics. MPB's Desiree Fraser with Dr. John Epstein on how Zika and other diseases cross from animals to humans. The documentary Spillover, Zika, Ebola, and Beyond appears tonight on MPB TV at 9. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9, it's Fix It 101, then at 10, Everyday Tech, and at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show, there are several ways you can listen on our website, mpbonline.org, through the MPB Multimedia app, or search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app. 
I'm Paul Boger in for Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. MPB is getting its very own car tag. But first, we need your help. To begin production, we need 300 of you to say yes to the tag. Go to mpbonline.org slash car tag for more information and also to sign up. A portion of the fee goes to help MPB continue to educate, inform, and entertain Mississippians. Thanks for your help, and we'll see you on the road. It's Marketplace Tech for Wednesday, August 3rd. I'm Ben Johnson in New York. Whether we are on Snapchat,